In this episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with Catherine Young, the Head of Investments for Cambuya Proprietary Limited, the Fairfax family office. Catherine's had an interesting investment career, having previously worked for Mutual Trust and the Meyer family office as Director of Investment Research, and for Morningstar as Director of Manager Research. This puts Catherine in a unique position in having met and interviewed many of Australia's top fund managers across all asset classes. Despite the informational barrage in the world of investments, Catherine's focus on clarity and simplicity cuts through the overwhelm to find managers that generate repeatable returns. By the end of our conversation, Catherine left me feeling at ease in a world of complexity, which speaks firstly to her depth of understanding and perspective, but also to her humility. I really enjoyed our chat. I hope you find it as interesting as I did. This is David Hobart from Beyond the Obvious, the podcast in search of unexpected insights for investment professionals. Catherine, thanks so much for taking the time today to sit down and have a chat. I've been really looking forward to this. Uh, as a someone just generally invested, uh, interested in investing, but also having been an allocator personally in a, in a previous life, I've been really interested to get your thoughts on what it is that makes a good manager. And that's a very broad question. But, you know, perhaps uh, to start with, we could just talk a little bit philosophically about, you know, in your mind, what makes a, a good manager or versus, you know, someone that you wouldn't touch, Yeah. you know, from the get go. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, thank you for having me. Um, I'm certainly happy to be here and hopefully I can offer some some insight uh, to you. Uh, look, it's, I think it's, it's a really good question and there are, you know, myriad answers to that question and they're probably all right to some to some degree because there are so many different ways to do it. But, uh, you know, I think um, philosophically, I think there are two main things that a good investor or a good manager should really, you know, focus on and focus on achieving and, and be clear about. And, and the first one is clarity, just clarity of objective. I think it's a really obvious one, but it's actually really difficult to, it's actually difficult in progress to, or um, practice to, uh, to be really clear about exactly what it is that you're trying to achieve and, and how exactly uh, you are trying to, to achieve that. And, and the second thing is, is, is to keep it simple. I think in this world, you know, in this investing world, it's so easy to be attracted to sort of whiz bang, newfangled ideas and things. Um, you know, complexity is so attractive, but actually, I think uh, simplicity simplicity is really the key. So, keeping your process simple and keeping your objective simple uh, are really are two really important components. Yeah, right. So, when you say um, uh clarity and when you're specifically looking at clarity is that kind of like just understanding the anomaly or the the what it is that where you bring your edge like where you bring as a manager the specific thing that you're focused on and where you bring an advantage to your process is that is that kind of what you mean yeah I, that's exactly right i think knowing the that that's right knowing that the single thing that you are looking for the the single thing that you think you are good at so you know, for, as an example, you know, people used to talk a lot about 
an informational advantage. You know, people believed that, it, you know, for a mm-hmm. long time, an informational advantage, that was a thing. And that did work. Um, you know, you could gain a, an advantage over other investors by doing more research or talking to more people. But increasingly, that is not the case anymore. Uh, and so I think you need to be really clear about what your advantage is. And in these in these days, I think, you know, the most reliable advantage anymore is probably a behavioral advantage understanding you know how you behave relative to how other investors behave and consistently behaving in the same way uh, that you think you know is better you know is better than than other investors let's say and similarly I think being really clear about the one thing that you think makes a stock outperform you know I think the best managers are those that have you know a key, factor or thing that they are looking for. uh, And they just, they are constantly hewing to that single thing. Like as an example, I think um, Hyperion, which is a Brisbane based manager that I'm sure you are, you know, familiar with, they are so focused on growth profile, just over and over and over. That is really the only thing that they care about. And they're just sort of impervious to all the other things that that other investors, you know, think matter a lot, um, particularly valuation. Uh, and they're just sort of impervious to the, the criticism people lob them about that because they're so focused, you know, they're so focused on that one thing, on that growth profile. So they just have a lot of clarity about what they're looking for and, and how they, you know, how they achieve that or how they get that better than other investors. So Catherine, do you always choose managers that are focused on one thing or, or do you ever choose managers that are sort of more all weather in their approach? You're, you kind of have a more institutional focus and obviously have a capacity to do portfolio construction, uh, whereas most self-directed investors, you know, perhaps they don't have those skills to identify the idiosyncratic skills or, or, or edge, if you like, in individual managers. Okay. Yeah. So no, look, because, you know, because in part, because I, we believe that you need to, you know, that clarity of purpose um, and that, you know, simplicity of your process focused on that one thing is so important. We, most of the managers in our portfolios are focused on, you know, a single, a single way of doing it. And then we put them together because we think there are, you know, a variety of ways to do it. And so we are trying to build a portfolio that is, you know, balanced across those, you know, across those ways of doing it. But we don't have, you know, 20 managers in within Australian equities, let's say we have four or maybe four, you know, so we think that it's not, you don't need, you know, you just need there's a there's a few ways to skin that cat, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, sure. So we are we are looking put, to put together a portfolio of those few ways of managers that we think are are doing it the best at those at those few ways. Now that said, so I think you, there are some strategies that tend to be a little more all weather than others. Um, yeah. You know, for example, I think a quality focused strategy tends to be more all weather uh, than others. Uh, I know you've spoken with Jamie Nichol at DNR, and they have you know. Yeah. A, quality focus strategy and just excellent at it. Uh, and I think, you know, for a, for a self-directed investor, you know, a quality manager is probably a, a good bet in terms of reasonably all weather. Yeah, sure. No, that makes sense. So when you, uh, like say you're looking at Aussie equities, so you're putting together, um, a 
portion of your portfolio in the Aussie equity bucket, are you do you then go, okay, which types of managers do I want to look at? I want to look at quality. I want to look at growth. I want to look at value. Is that the way? And then you find the best of breed inside each of those different kind of styles or, or do you just look more broadly? I need Aussie equity managers who are the best across, you know, across the board. It's a good question because it's a little bit chicken and egg, actually. You know, I would say mm. that it 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 does typically start with the latter. You know, you start so you start by saying, okay, we need to you know build up an Australian equities exposure. Who are the best managers? And then as you start digging into the best managers. I think you tend to find that the best are those that have sort of some distinct characteristics, and then you end up building a portfolio of managers with those distinct characteristics. So we didn't really set out to do, you know, to build portfolios based on factor exposures, but it sort of has shaken out that way because I think the best managers tend to have some sort of distinct characteristic, a distinct way of doing it. And that's what leads them to be the best. They're not the best on, you know, any single day, any given day or in any given year, um, you know, but over the longer term, they're best. And I think it's best. They're best because they're focusing on a specific thing that they believe in and know really well. Yeah, sure. So, Catherine, what about, you know, let's just look at, say, uh, uh, growth within the Aussie equity space, for example. What is it that to you stands out as a, you know, a great qualities for a growth Aussie equity manager? Well, you know, I think um, we would probably say that the qualities are the same really across Australian equities or global equities in terms of what makes a really good growth manager. I think that the the Australian equities manager needs to be more content with a concentrated portfolio because there are going to be fewer of those really high quality options. But um, mm. but the but the I think the philosophy philosophy is the same. I think. Um, you know, a, a good a good growth focused manager has to be able to identify, you know, a growth profile, and you know, it has to be able to identify the driver of a good growth profile. What is the you know the underlying driver of that growth profile, and then it needs to be able to very clearly articulate what are the challenges to that growth profile? Because I think especially for a growth manager, the key thing is evaluating that growth profile over time and evaluating whether or not, you know, this apparent threat to that growth, the growth profile or this apparent, um, you know, failure to meet a milestone, um, whether or not that is, you know, that breaks the thesis. So I think constantly being able to evaluate whether or not the growth thesis is broken is 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 really is really important. And I think that you know you would probably want to contrast that with a value manager, right? So a sure. value manager I think in contrast to being able to, you know, so focused on these milestones, I think a value manager, a good value manager needs to probably have a a better sense of what's in the price. Um, so that they can more clearly evaluate what, uh, you know, what they think, um, you know, the, the problem is here, say, versus what the, what the market thinks the problem is here, uh, to be able to make some sort of, um, you know, to be able to have confidence that, uh, you know, the market um, will eventually come around to their, to their 
way of thinking. Does that make sense? I think, you know, the growth profile, the growth manager needs to really be able to be confident in those milestones um, and, you know, the driver of the growth profile so that they can understand you know, what happens, what's, what's actually happening at each of these milestones. Whereas maybe that's a little bit less important for a value manager. Yeah, sure. Well, maybe we should just go through your sort of process checklist a little bit, you know, when choosing and choosing say a growth or a value manager, like, do you have a sort of clear checklist of what it is that you're looking for or like how much of it is strict process and how much is qualitative in terms of, you know, your ranking of a manager? Mm, yeah. Well, so, I mean, that, you know, the process or the approach and what you're looking for would really be consistent across, you know, different types of style. Personally, I am really focused on process and investment process. And it's the process about picking a stock, but also in particular, the process about managing that stock through its life cycle, life cycle in the portfolio. Um, because, you know, I think like many researchers, I am convinced that repeatability of the process is key. So that's why yeah. I think, you know, clarity and simplicity are so important because you ha- you need to be able to repeat that. You need to be able to make decisions in a consistent way uh, over time. And so, you know, I am really, I'm always really quite focused on the different stages of the process, how a manager is making decisions at that stage, how a manager has set herself up to make decisions consistently and quickly over time. So, you know, does that process make it easy for a manager to, you know, to make decisions at every point that a, that a decision needs to be made? Because then I can have more confidence that that decision will be made consistently you know, over time in, in, in a consistent fashion. And I think really important to that is um, the manager's process for evaluating their own decisions. So, you know, how often or how um, uh, how thoroughly do they evaluate the decisions that they made, right or wrong, so that they can determine, you know, what elements of that they should, you know, focus on and augment in their process and maybe what, what elements of that they should they should leave leave by the side. So I think, you know, we're always really focused on clarity and repeatability of the process and then, you know, humility and evaluation of that of that process over time. And we want to see alignment between that process, of course, and the objective and, you know, the advantage that they and the advantage that they that they think they have. And of course, we want to make sure that their resources are well aligned, you know, to that process, but I think that's a given. Yeah. So how, how much um like we're on Aussie equity, so how much of or or do you invest portion of your assets into index style ETFs as passive versus active, basically. Are you, do you do anything in passive in Aussie equities or is it all active? Um, in my current role, we don't do anything in passive, but I am actually, I think passive, you know, is a very reasonable, um, you know, can be, you know, is a very reasonable part of portfolio construction, can be. Uh, for many investors, and in fact, for self-directed investors, I think passive um, is 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 an especially attractive option. Uh, but I think that you can have a lot of success with passive. 
But I also think you can have a lot of a success with active. I'm not, I'm, I'm reasonably agnostic about that. Um, but I think it's just about for, as an investor, I think it's really just about understanding um, your own limitations and your own biases. So for example, you know, clients in my current role are biased toward active, um, you know, whether or not, you know, I'm not going to argue with them that that is incorrect or correct. I'm, I'm reasonably agnostic to it. I just want to set up portfolios so that my client can be successful over time. And if they're going to constantly be frustrated with its passive, with passive because maybe because it's boring or, or something, you know, then we're probably not going to be successful over the long term that way. Conversely, for a, you know, a self-directed investor who is time poor and has, you know, a full-time job doing something else, let's say, you know, passive, you can be very pa- successful and passive over the long term because you don't have to pay attention to it. So I, I think it's, um, you know, you can you can be successful either way. It's just about, again, being really clear about what your objectives are and setting up a process so that you can be successful uh, over time with it. Yeah, that makes sense because, you know, the reason I asked the question was because it occurred to me that, you know, as a self-directed, it's really tough to make those uh, individual active manager calls like, you know, how do you get under the bonnet? How do you understand whether they're true to true to mandate all the time? I mean, obviously you can you you can buy research or have access to research from people like you that have you know got under the bonnet of these managers, but it's a pretty it's a, it's a hard thing to do as an individual to get a real sense of that. Whereas, as you say, passively, um, you know, it's if you want an allocation of Aussie equities, you can do it cheaply. Uh, without having to understand, uh, you know, the uh, individual manager. That's right. Yeah. And and you don't have to keep, keep on top of it over time, you know? So let's say, you know, you could, let's say you, you get into a great active manager and, and, you know, they produce 2% extra for you, um, you know, over a couple of years, Uh, but then there's some sort of ownership change or manager change or something. And so then, you know, you spend, a few months out of the market while you're trying to work that out in between your full-time job and looking after your kids and you've wiped out those extra returns real quick. So I think, yeah, sure. you know, it, but there it, are periods obviously like now, you know, we, we, we active is very much back in favor. Uh, you know, so obviously there's been a, a selection of managers that have done quite well through this COVID experience relative yeah. to passive or index types. Yeah. So, but again, it's hard to make that, um, distinction without sort of having a handheld, I think, uh, as a general rule. So do you, do you find that getting, uh, you get much diversification benefit for your portfolios by having, I mean, outside of, you know, manager, specific manager risk or credit risk almost, do you find you get much diversification benefit by holding a few different active Aussie equity managers, or do you find you have to get portfolio diversification benefit you get more of that obviously through investing in other asset classes well we definitely get more diversification benefit by investing in other asset classes um you know i think through this covid crisis that's clearly been the case global equities unhedged global equities for example were you know really helped buoy portfolios um 
um, you know, helped sort of offset the, you know, pain that people felt in Australian equities portfolios. So clearly, you know, I, you know, diver- investing in other asset classes is where we look to for diversification. That said, sure. we are, you know, we think we can get diversification. We're sure we can get diversification within our Australian equities uh, portfolio as well. We are, you know, we have, like I said, you know, we tend to have, let's call it four to six managers within Australian equities. And, uh, you know, we are always looking at overlap and and things like that. But you can see in the relative performance of managers throughout this COVID crisis that clearly they are having very different experiences, even though they're investing in the same market. So we certainly are able to get diversification. um, But like I said, you wouldn't, you know, you I think four managers is enough to do that. <laughs> yeah, sure. That yeah, definitely. Um, so, what about uh, long short Aussie equity? Do you do anything in that world, like to get a, you know, if you wanted diversification, or sort of to take out some of the market risk in the Aussie equity space? Do you do any long short? Yeah, I think long short. Um, you know, I think that's a, definitely a valid a valid strategy. Uh, you know, I think I believe just philosophically that you know shorting is another you know, way to produce alpha, another way to make money. So I think it, you know, is a completely valid approach. I will just say it's really difficult to pull off in terms of, yeah, you know, sure. going to a single manager for both long and short. I've met a lot of managers, really smart people, really dedicated people over the years, um, you know, who have done long short, but not really been successful at it because it is a different skill set, I think to short stocks versus to go long. So I think it's really, really difficult to do both of those things um, really well at the same time. Because like I said, simplicity is key. Trying to do one thing over and over and over, I think is the key to success. And when you try to go long and short, it can be really difficult. That's not to say I've never seen it happen well. uh, But um, in the cases where I've seen it work out well, the manager has a different, a sort of different approach to the short side than they do to the long side, um, as opposed to just using like a converse approach. You know what I mean? So instead of, you know, you know, going converse on the short side, I think they really have sort of a different philosophy about the short side um, and maybe even different staff in house that do it. Uh, I think those are, you know, those are, your best, you know, that's probably the best way to do it as opposed to a single person going long and short. I think that's really, really difficult to pull off. Yeah, sure. That makes a lot of sense. It is a different beast for sure. Getting short stocks is, uh, well, individual stocks can be pretty hair raising um, and not for the faint hearted, that's for sure. Absolutely. So what about um, some of your other asset classes? Like, you know, you do, uh, I mean, there's fixed income, obviously, but you also in some of the unlisted stuff. Like, yeah, how, how is a, one of your portfolios as a general generalized question? How how is it constructed across asset classes? So I'll just say that we take privacy really seriously at Cambuya. So I won't speak too specifically about any of our portfolios, but um, sure. you know, I will say that we do have. Uh, you know, we do have a pretty high proportion to unlisted asset classes. So let's say relative to, you know, a super fund or an industry fund in Australia, we would have, you know, similar asset allocation in that we would be investing in all of the same asset classes. 
uh, but yeah. we would probably have a higher proportion in illiquid securities. So we'd probably have a higher proportion to unlisted equities, unlisted property, unlisted infrastructure uh, than, you know, than a super or industry fund, which makes plenty of sense, you know, um, Family office capital is different than, uh, you know, industry fund capital, certainly. And one of the benefits of family office capital is a long term horizon. And um, and, you know, so we try to employ that long term horizon to, to make money for the family where we can. And, um, you know, clearly an illiquidity premium is sort of an obvious place to do that. I think it's less obvious whether the illiquidity premium will be what you want it to be. But um mm-hmm. But certainly, uh, it makes sense for us. Yeah, sure. So you know, in terms of super funds, like, I mean, they, they, as a general rule, they've got a pretty long liability sort of exposure. Mm. Why do you think that they would have a lower? I mean, you you know may not know the answer to this, but why do you think they would have a lower unlisted appetite, say, than a family office as a? Well, it's, I mean, I think the, you know, the, um, exactly what we've seen in Australia with, um, you know, now members can pull some money out of their, of their super fund, uh, to help them through the COVID crisis is, is, is example number one of why super funds need to think more, need to think differently about liquidity than, um, than a family office does. We, you know, they're just, we can control, um, you know, what comes in and out, uh, from a cash flow perspective, more than a you know an industry fund or a super fund could control that, yeah. um, and um, and we have you know sort of less regulatory uh, oversight, um, I guess, o- over that because you know it's just it's just a very different relationship. I, I, I'm a little bit curious as to you know we're talking manager selection, mm-hmm. uh, and you know active managers have got to bring. A little bit of alpha to the table, but maybe not. You know, like because there's this idea of alternative beta, which mm-hmm. you know, you know, I'm I'm from a hedge fund background, so you know, there's a lot of strategies within the hedge fund space that you know have been basically getting paid a premium, so two and you know two and twenty or one and a half and twenty, and have really been just providing alternative alternative beta you know trend you know classic trend following or some mean reversion strategies mm-hmm. um, you know they, they've got to be executed well but you know is it really alpha that they're delivering and I wonder uh, you know inside some of the like how you frame that question in your own mind or in your own process like are you able to really distinguish genuine alpha from you know, a kind of a well-executed beta experience? It's a really good question, David. It's a very good question. Uh, And I, you know, my instinctual answer is no, really. (laughs) You know, in most um, sort of liquid strategies, I think it is, you know, it is very difficult to distinguish, um, you know, alpha from sort of an alternative beta. Now, there are certainly ways that we try to we try to do it. So, you know, you, we would use uh, there increasingly now you can get indexes for you know specific factors. So you can yeah. 
compare a manager's performance to a specific, you know, an index of that specific factor a lot more than you could in the past. So that makes it a lot easier, I would say, to do it. But there are still so many caveats around that. So, you know, how yeah. does the index define that factor um, and versus how does the manager define it, say? And how has that index changed over time, um, you know, changed its composition over time and, and does that cloud the analysis? Uh, so I would say that, you know, it's easier than it once was now that there is so much, uh, you know, focus on that now, uh, but it's still really difficult to do, uh, I think. And, um, you know, I think a lot of alternative beta products have disappointed uh, for, you know, there's probably a wide variety of reasons for that. Uh, and I wouldn't profess to be an expert, but I think, you know, uh, part of the reason for that is, is all the complexity around exactly, you know, these issues, exactly how you define, uh, what the factor is and, um, you know, how you look at that over time. Uh, so I think, uh, it's really, it's a great question. I wish I had a whiz bang answer, but, Frankly, I think the answer is no, it's still really difficult to do, still really difficult to tell the difference. So I think the yeah, and, and, investor is to stay focused on value for money. Yeah, sure. Oh, look, I think, um, you know, that's not – the question wasn't also to uh, belittle active management yeah. at, at, by any stretch. Like I actually think that, that a well-executed strategy which might have a high market beta – like it's a really hard thing to do is to be consistent in your execution and consistent in your application. And as you describe being, you know, being really clear about what it is that you do and what it is that you do well and being able to do that repeatedly over time, uh, like that's worth paying for. Mm -hmm. If, you know, if, if you're clear about what it is that you, you know, do and what it is that you do well, um, if you're true to label, like it's worth paying for. Right. And, you don't necessarily have to pay that much for it. You know, you don't, you yeah. don't have to pay two and 20 for that anymore. You know, you only pay two and 20 for venture capital anymore. So, yeah. Yeah. No. And I, and I get that there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, w often the fees are high when the leverage is high, if, if we're talking, you know, two and 20 type strategy. Mm -hmm. So in some of the hedge fund worlds, you know, uh, you know, paying for a leveraged risk premium, it's like that. Well, really, does that make sense? Um, not necessarily, uh, but you know, to each his own. So you you mentioned venture capital, like that's a very very interesting world. Uh, and like, how do you frame a good manager, whether it's PE or VC? Like, how do you frame a good from a not so good manager in that world? Mm. Uh, well, yeah, that's a good question because it is it is certainly a, a different beast um, than you know listed listed equities. Uh, but I think again, I think the principles are really the same. You know, the principles about being clear about what you are good at and setting yourself up to be good at it over and over and over again is 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 really the is really the key thing. The only thing I would add is that you know, especially within venture capital, um, there are, you know, there is, you know, these sort of old school advantages, I will call them, um, like informational advantage, um, in particular network advantage, uh, you know, the advantage of sort of knowing everyone. Yeah, so it's all deal flow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's still, 
that still yeah. matters. Yeah. So I think, you know, in venture capital, yeah. um, you know, in particular, seeing, seeing that deal flow, you know, you have to be able to identify the good stuff, right? Like that is still, you know, that's still about being clear about <clears throat> your own process and how you think is best to identify what the good things are, you know, and then um, mm-hmm. being smart about how you allocate your capital uh, to the good ones and being smart about failing fast on the bad ones. Um you know, that, that's all, you know, that to me, that, that gets down to the process stuff that we've already talked about, but those, you know, those sort of old school advantages still play, uh, still are still important, I would say in the unlisted space more so than the listed space. Yeah, sure. So in the funds management world, generally, there's some interesting characters, you know, across all different types of assets. Um, how do you, within your process, do you have anything that sort of you have flags, both positive and negative, from a character perspective? Like, is that, I mean, it's a little bit difficult to draw out, I'm guessing, but like when you meet with people, are there things that, you know, the types of character traits in the managers that you meet that are, are definite yeses and definite noes? Yeah. Uh, yes, definitely. I, I would say we actually, we spend a lot of time on values alignment. So we want to work yeah. with you know, partners that are aligned to us. Now, it's, it's just so corny these days to say partners that we're aligned with because everyone says that. But the reality is that it's very true. You know, we are entering into a long-term relationship with managers and we want to be confident that, um, you know, we are working with someone who values honesty and integrity uh, the same way that we do. And so I would say um, that we are looking at a lot of those things. We try to make it as systematic as we can. You know, we look at ownership structures uh, and how that has changed over time. Uh, And so there, you know, I would say we're looking for stability, but also, um, uh, you know, I guess humility is maybe not the right word for it, but an ability to share. You know, we are not, you know, we are for, you know, personalities are are very important, but one man never carries the show. So we are certainly looking for entities and groups and organizations that, you know, have an ability to share the wealth um, with the people who are doing the heavy lifting. That's really important to us. Um, but I guess, you know, also an, an ability to be honest about mistakes and uh, how they were made and what you've learned from them is is incredible is a, is a huge signal in terms of humility and, and values alignment uh, and then transparency is the other easy one you know that's that's an easy one to tick off are you you know how transparent uh, are you you know I mean I, I still in some cases I still have a hard time getting portfolio holdings out of some managers that are in you know listed listed equities. I feel like um, that is to me that's a that's a that's a terrible sign because yeah. uh, you think that we want to steal your IP and we you know we're trying to pay you for it. Uh, to me, that means you're not we're not on the same page about what's happening here. No, you certainly get a bit of that uh, in the funds management world. That, yeah, that's, uh, that's for sure. Hey, um, I wanted to digress a little bit and just ask, just you, you've got a very great reputation in this game like I've heard of you and about you uh, from a a number of sources and I was curious to get your thoughts and you're allowed to talk yourself up here Catherine but I wanted to know what you thought 
like your strengths are? Like, why are you good at what you do? Why do you have a good reputation in your mind? Well, first off, thank you uh, for that. Pleasure. Um, I guess, you know, I think why do I have, I think, I think those are two different questions. You know, why do I think I have a good reputation? If I have a good reputation, I think it's because I like working with people and I like viewing my work with other people as a long-term relationship with those people. Mm. Whether or not we have a transaction immediately in front of us that we can both benefit from, I like to view it as a long-term relationship. You know, I like to sure. I like to view anyone that I work with as a peer, as a colleague, yeah. because because um, they are <laughs> because they are, uh, and I just uh, so I think that you know I I think. You know, my parents, my parents spent a long time teaching me that, you know, everyone is, is basically the same. And so you should treat everyone that you meet, um, with the same level of respect that, that you would treat me really. And so I think, you know, I still, I still try to do that. So I think that would probably be why, you know, if I have a good reputation, that's why I think I hope that people, you know, enjoy working with me because, I respect them and I'm honest and I, and I, frankly, I always try to keep it light. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, think yeah, true. I, I always, you know, there's, there's always a silver lining, always something to laugh about. And so I'm always trying to do that as well. So I, I think that's why people would like working with me in terms of whether or not I'm any good at what I do. If I am um, any good at what I do, I think it's because probably two things. Number one, I try to be, you know, the same thing that I ask for managers, I try to achieve in myself, which is clarity. What are we trying to achieve? And I always try to yeah. be so focused on what is it that we are trying to achieve? And, and then, you know, and then just be really honest with myself and everyone about the best way to achieve, to achieve that goal. Um, and, and then I guess the other thing that might make me good at what I do is that uh, I'm, I try to be very organized in my thinking, right? So I think I, I, I went to, I have an MBA. <laughs> I think that I love a good framework, you know? I love it when things, yeah. you know, I try to break everything down into, um, you know, to organize an argument. It's almost like building a case like a lawyer, you know? You're trying to... Um, if you want to convince someone of something or you want to find, you know, you want to convince someone that this is the right decision, the right way to achieve that goal, I think you need to be really organized, um, you know, to break it down into a few key points that help people digest and understand. Uh, and so I think that sort of um, clarity of objective and clarity of thought in terms of organizing it into a few key points, uh, I think, um, can help help make me better at what I do because that, that gets at the simplicity thing also as well. Sure. If you can't break down your reason to invest in this fund or, you know, this asset into a few key points, um, then it's not very simple and you probably don't understand it very well. So, um, yeah. always trying to keep that in mind. You, you know, you, you, um, you occur to me as someone who probably doesn't do a whole lot of stress in their work life. No. Uh, would that be a fair 
Yes, I think that's fair. Um, but it's not, I wouldn't say that comes naturally. <laughs> you know, I, I, I try. No, no, but well, the reason I ask, the reason I ask that is because, you know, you, as you say, you want clarity and simplicity and you draw that out in your process. And you, so that's what you expect from the managers you invest in. So there's, you know, the better the process, the less emotional kind of, I mean, you know, as a general rule, you've got a better process, you're going to have less um, reasons to get stressed out around uncertainty. Yeah. No, that's a, it's a really, that's a really good point. I, I, I think that's right. Um, I also think being stressed is a waste of time. <laughs> just, yeah. it's just a waste of time. You know, it's a waste of energy. Surely your energy can be spent um, in better ways and sort of fretting about things that you can't control, I guess. And that's a, that's a good point. Knowing what you can control and what you can't. Yeah. And then, um, and then just, you I know. did interrupt you, uh, earlier, like I just did then again, but I, 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 you, you said it didn't always come easily to you. Like, how did you, you know, how did you learn to manage the stresses of your work environment? Well, that again, I, that's a really good question and I'm happy to talk about that. I think, um, yeah. it's honestly, it was sort of, it's just a choice. I just, I just try to make a choice all the time, every day that, you know, you know, how do I want to spend my time and energy? I want to spend my time and energy on things I can control. Mm. I can't control it. It's a waste of time and just let it go. And so then I think it's about, I've made the choice to let it go. And then it's just about, it's about discipline, mental and emotional discipline to actually let it go. And so I work, I would say that I work as a person, I work a lot on that mental and emotional discipline. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Yeah, No. And it, and you know, in the manner in which you communicate, it comes through. So that's obviously why I've um, gone down that little rabbit hole, Catherine. So thank you for humoring me. Yes, no, absolutely. Thanks for letting me talk about myself, you know, people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I must say, you know, you kind of did, uh, you, 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 when I ask you what you're good at, you, you started to trip over yourself a little bit there, Catherine. It's like, oh, talking talking yourself up doesn't come naturally. So obviously, humility does, and that's uh, you know that speaks to you, to your character as well. So good on you. Thank you. Uh, you know, if you don't mind, um, yeah. I would at some stage. It doesn't have to be now, but I think um, one thing you brought up a good point. Something I would I think it would be interesting to talk about is uh, yeah. this this idea about emotion in 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 the world of investing, because I've, I've been, you know, I think a lot about uh, emotion and behavioral biases, because obviously, you know, that matters a lot for an investment process. You know, I think as an investment mm-hmm. professional, you're, you're taught always to take emotion out of it and, um, and to yeah. control for your behavioral biases, to recognize them and control for them. And I think that is, that's correct. I agree with, I agree with all of that. However, I think it's very interesting because once you get into client service, client management, mm. I think it's actually the opposite. You have to, you have to let the emotion in. You have to recognize your client's emotion and, uh, and be comfortable with that and, and, and do what you can as, as their advisor, uh, to, to sort of manage around that, if that makes sense. It's something I've been thinking a lot about. How do you strike this balance between in your own investment process, you want to keep the emotion out of it, but then you have to recognize when you're working with humans that you can't and that trying to eliminate the emotion will be converse to your goal. 
how do you do that? Do you do that through narrative? Like, is it is that a way to kind of connect your sort of objective process with you know the emotional needs of the client? Is it is it a, a, a process of narrative? Is it like, or how, how do you manage that? Do you, or how are you managing that? I know for you it's a voyage of discovery, but yeah, how are you doing it to date? Um, I think you're absolutely right that narrative is a, is a big part of it. So I am trying to learn to, to speak, um, to, to, to communicate in a way that, uh, accepts and addresses emotions. I was just talking with my colleague the other day about, um, this biography of Abraham Lincoln. I read in how, you know, he was regarded as such a wonderful leader in part because he spoke in fables and stories. Uh, you know, he really, you know, addressed emotion head on and tried to actually engender emotion in people through the way that he communicated. That's because he has a diff- had a very different job uh, than the one I have. But I yeah. am trying to learn from that in that, yes, using the way you speak to, um, you know, address those emotions as opposed to ignore them is really important. But also, I think in the investment process or the investment, you know, portfolio that I build for a client, I try to directly address it there as well. Like I mentioned before, if I don't think a client is behaviorally interested in passive strategies, I'm not going to beat my head against that wall because there's no need to. You know, I think that we can achieve what we want to achieve with active strategies potentially even better. Um, similarly, if I know a client is really is really active, you know, some clients, they want to see new ideas yep. all the time, you know. Um, I try to um, I try to bring them, you know, a wide variety of ideas and then maybe say, I think this one is the best one. So that I'm I'm guiding them in the direction that I want to go while at, you know, that I think they should go while at the same time, you know, trying to give them what they need to be, you know, to, to latch on to the process. Yeah. I, I, I must say, I find, um, what, what I find helpful in doing that is, um, I mean, authentically expressing my vulnerability a little bit, you know, or my own uncertainty as vulnerability, not being afraid to occur uncertain, but having a manner to communicate where I can express that uncertainty inside a framework. Uh, and it, it kind of, uh, well, it, it opens up the opportunity for connection. Yeah. yeah C- Catherine, I've really enjoyed chatting, uh, just getting you, you know, you've got such a grounded and balanced perspective around this. I mean, you've got to take a very broad view in what you do. You've got to look across different asset classes and all the different managers within those asset classes. So you've got to have a pretty broad and holistic view of the world, but you bring to it a no, I'm le- I'm left feeling quite grounded. Uh, like you give me peace of mind, you give me certainty inside a very complex and uncertain world. So it's interesting you talk about your, you know, how to communicate emotion around an objective process. Well, I think you know quite naturally, that's how you communicate. So oh, I've really enjoyed chatting, you know, about all this stuff, Catherine. You, uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Well, first off, thank you very much. I've enjoyed the conversation as well. I, I certainly hope there's been something interesting for everyone in it. So where, where can people find you if they want to reach out or find out more about what you do? Well, I think LinkedIn is is the best, you know, good old LinkedIn. Uh, it's been the best for a few years. And it, it still is. So please, uh, please, LinkedIn. 
Well, I'll link, I'll link to your uh, profile in the show notes. So thanks again, Catherine. Really appreciate your time. It's been great. Absolutely. Thank you, David. Take care. That's it for today's episode of Beyond the Obvious. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a favourable rating or review in the App Store. If you'd like to get in touch, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. Until next time, hooray. Hooray.